Listener Production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. This is part three of Peter's conversation with manager, record label owner and music publisher, John Watson. It was never a given that Cold Chisel were going to come back with the hunger the band now has. John talks about how that came about and his work with another landmark Aussie rock band, Midnight Oil. So the, there is, um, there's always a sense, I think, of luck at the beginning of careers, of Managers' careers of performers, performers, but there's a point, frankly, when you get to fifty, when luck's gone, mm-hmm. you, you've actually found a way to accept that you're good at something and then refine that art form. Um, part of, uh, I'm talking to you, not about the band now. That the the skill that I still think you bring to it that that's worth some discussion is. For someone like Jimmy, particularly, you know, the the books, uh, the first book's been an extraordinary success. He went out and sat on a stage and talked about his life and times. Uh, admittedly, the, there was musicians there, but it wasn't a cold chisel tour. It wasn't a Jimmy Barnes performance. It was him within his soul. That 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 level of confidence that he has to do that work comes as well from the foundations that are built around it. And I, I, I felt that was part of what was going on on the stage every time Chisel walked out. They, they, were, they weren't just on fire. They knew how good they were. Yeah, and I think that that came also, though, from them learning how to really relate to each other. Perhaps, you know, for the first time necessarily, that's a bit presumptuous. Steve's passing changed everything. Right. Steve's passing changed everything. You know, what were we thinking? You know, Don spoke, you spoke before about how erudite he was at the App Rewards and he was and he's an incredibly impressive person. Um, he spoke equally impressively at the press conference we did to announce that 2011 Light the Nitro tour um, about how the band always thought that they could do it next year, you know, and they let their own little sort of petty squabbles and everything else stand in the way of them making music together. And then when Steve wasn't there anymore, what were we thinking? Like, why did we not do more of that when we could? And let's not make that mistake again. So I think that, you know, um, thank you for trying to give me credit, but I won't take it because I think that the, the, the band found a deeper level of engagement with each other and it was reflected in the shows and their, their music was striking such a chord with people over time because it's that good. Um, and they were able to make new music that also struck chords in, in its ways. You know, they, had two, they made two new albums that both, you know, were gold and platinum selling records and, and um, you know, had this wonderful... Uh, second career almost, um, which has been incredible. And as far as Jimmy's concerned with, with his book, that's been one of the, the great experiences of my professional career. Um, you know, I don't really manage Jimmy's solo career per se, but I've done the book and the associated tour and everything else. You were a publisher as well. 
<laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm just. He's, he's the author, and I've just been like, you know, a bit of a sounding board or whatever along the way, and helped do the deals for it and the marketing promotion stuff around it. But he's, um, it's been a phenomenally, um, it's been a really powerful project to be part of. You know, um, you'll often get something in life that um, gets good reviews. You'll often get something that makes a quid. You'll often get something that's good for the person who made it and you'll often get something that's good for the audience. This book does all four things, you know. It's been a big part of Jimmy coming to terms with, you know, an incredibly difficult childhood and starting to understand why he had so many self-destructive behaviours for so long. Um, But it's also helped a lot of people who've read it uh, open up a bit about their own stuff. You know, it's an incredible thing to go to a book signing with Jimmy and to watch as particularly blokes of a certain age, um, standing in line, typically with the third or fourth wife, will come up to him and say, look, you know, I need you to know that I had this and that happen to me as a kid and I'd never told anybody and I'd tried to drown it in this way and that way. And But after your book, I finally told Doris here and it's brought us closer together and I just want you to know how amazing it is. And they all think they're the only person having the story. And if you stand side on, you can see these blokes are every 10 in the line, one after another after another. It's an incredible thing. Mm. Blokes of a certain vintage just didn't talk about how they felt, including the members of Cold Chisel. So it's, um, it's been an amazing process watching how that process of, of opening up about some of this stuff has helped Jim. I'm not pretending it's got some Disney ending, but it's definitely helped. And, um, mm. and also how it's helped other people. Plus, it's been phenomenally successful, both commercially and critically. And there's more than one book. Yes. So um, by the time this comes out, the second book will be out and um, that will tell the rest of sort of the rock and roll years, if you like. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it contains quite a few surprises and it's, it's perhaps in some ways more the book people expected the first time around in that it's the stories of, you know... Yeah, Adelaide, well, just the whole thing, really. And, you know, Jimmy sort of darkly jokes, you know, the longest public suicide in Australian history, um, except it's not even a joke. Uh, so, you know, but also really comes back to the books at the end and the role that they've played in helping him turn and face some of the demons that had previously propelled him. And yet a man beloved by so much of the country. Yeah, well, I think that, there's something really appealing to people about admitting your flaws. And that's been a revelation. I I expect, you know, I don't want to speak on Jim's behalf, but I I would expect that that's been a bit of a revelation to him. There's something pretty incredible about the very stuff that you desperately tried for 50-whatever years to bury and keep a secret, you know, this awful childhood stuff. The act of talking about it in public turned out to be good for you, turned out to be good for your career, turned out to be good for other people. Like, you know, there's, uh, there's definitely something in that. Well, <clears throat> it's a tribute to you, John. Well, I think it's, you know, the brave person is him because, you know, to own up to all of the stuff that he's had to own up to in both books mm. is not easy, you know. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the second book that, you know, he's not proud of, um, but he's kind of stared it down and I think that, uh, if people respected him for the first one, I hope that they respect him even more for the second one. It's a much better bloody read than Bruce Springsteen's. 
Well, of course, as a massive Springsteen fan, uh-huh. I, 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 I can never say a bad word about the boss, but I was very pleased when I heard that Bruce is going to be doing a show on Broadway where he's doing bits from his book and talking about them and playing acoustic songs. I did not I, know that. At the end of this year, he's not yet actually announced it publicly, but it is definitely happening apparently. And uh, I looked at that and went... There you go. I hope that at some point Jimmy's going to get a little bit of a hats off as like, you know. Kudos. Kudos. You know, it didn't happen there first, happened here first. <laughs> the Oils, the other great Australian band that you have. How did that happen? So Cultures were the band of my high school years. Um, they broke up in 83. The last time was 83. Which poster was on the wall? Poster on the bedroom wall from the, uh, from the record store that I worked at. Midnight Oil were the band of my uni years, um, you know, studying first-year politics in 1984 when Pete was running for the M- NDP, Red Sails and the Sunset, in the cassette player of the Datsun 120Y. Um, and uh, another poster on the bedroom wall, the Double J, uh, Triple J Live at the Capitol poster, which is also now on my office wall. Um, lucky my mum had kept those posters. Uh, but I had had some dealings with the oils... Um, during my time at Sony in the early 90s when I was doing international marketing there, I stepped into the role about halfway through their Earth and Sun and Moon album and travelled a bit with them in Europe. So I knew them a bit through that. Jim had also um, contributed to a couple of the Silverchair albums, so I knew him through that. And um, Fine Nick, musicians. Those brilliant, brilliant musicians. And um, Nick Lorne, who had produced The Oils, had produced Silverchair. So we had some sort of commonalities. Um Gary had uh, very publicly stood down from managing the band in 2013 and then in 2000 and... Was there a band to manage, forgive me, in those days? Not, well, no, probably not is the truth. I mean, look, all of, when Pete went into politics in 2000 and, well, the band stopped playing in 2002 and Pete went into parliament in 2004. Um, And through that period, I mean, there was catalogue interests to maintain and so forth, but other than the extraordinary performances at Wave Aid and Sound Relief and the warm-up gigs for them, the band, as Midnight Oil, were not active. The individual members were all incredibly active. You know, um, three of the guys were in the break. Bones moved to America and toured with all sorts of bands. Jim had projects with the ACO. Rob had solo records. They were all... They never stopped making music, um, which has been which is part of the reason why when they did step back in for Wave 8 and Sound Relief, they were able to just instantly go back to being an incredible band was because, you know, while Pete had been in Canberra wearing a suit and tie, everybody else had been gigging nonstop. Rob had been playing drums with the Backsliders every weekend for years. Um, So they kept up their match fitness right through. Um, From a management standpoint, though, there probably wasn't as much to do. And I think Gary, I don't really, I can't speak for him, but I think he probably got frustrated um, that, that the band wasn't sort of grabbing the opportunities that were there. But you know, Pete in particular had other things he wanted to do. So when Peter came to us in 2015, I think, um, talking about wanting to possibly make a solo record and, you know, just sounding us out sort of as a friend, we had mutual friends. Um, and so it's just, you know, getting some advice, who should I work with, you know, that kind of, I'm not silly. I've kind of thought, oh, this could lead to something. Um, but equally, I was just happy to be you know, dealing with it. I, I respect Peter. I respect very much what the band accomplished. And um, just being around it was fun. So I was quite happy to help out informally. And then that led to a more formal role <clears throat> with Pete's solo record. And as part of the preparations for that, the band had sat down and talked about when they might be able to do something. And 2017 was carved out as 
oils year. And um, so we came on board to start preparing um, options for them really to consider for, for what they might do in 2017. Um, yeah, within a lot of pretty strong guidelines set by the guys. And it's a glo- but much more of a global um, proposition, correct? Yes, exactly right. Yeah, the oils um, made a dent on the world stage. They worked really hard for that. They got opportunities to do that. Um, and a lot of their messages are global in nature, you know, whether it's climate change, whether it's social justice. Um, so it made sense for them to tour around the world. Um, and we liked sort of the poetry of starting the tour in Australia, going right around the world and then finishing back in Australia again. And the, and the global date, the international touring dates have worked? Yeah, everything, you know, vastly exceeded our expectations. The American tour sold out in days, you know, they've had to add extra shows in London and Paris. They've, they've played for the first time ever in Czechoslovakia and had 50,000 people at a festival. It was extraordinary. Um, they've got back to South Africa, which was a really special moment for them in their career They've got Southeast Asia for the first time to play a gig in Singapore. Um, headlining the Greek theatre in LA shortly. Um, so it's been a phenomenal experience. And I think it's, again, a testament to the work that they did back in the day. The depths of the bonds that they formed with people um, were out there waiting to be reactivated. Are they still genuine question not of uh, of their musicality but their relevance was always somewhat political as well is that still there I think that's there more than ever I think that you know and obviously this is where my own biased as a you know hopeless latte lefty will will uh, <laughs> will will uh, <coughs> stand me in bad stead but um, you know, I would argue that they're on the right side of history on most most of the issues that they took a stand on um, so whether it was land rights, whether it was environmental degradation, um, you know, they, whether it was corporate greed, um, if you look at what's happened <laughs> over the decades since, their messages haven't become less relevant, they've become more relevant. And particularly in an age of Trump, when you're watching the band play in Washington, D.C. on the day that the president's um, fired the, the head of the FBI in order to stop him from investigating ties with Russia and the band launches into When the Generals Talk, followed by US forces. It's like they've been writing songs for the show at Soundcheck. Um, so I think that, you know, it's testament to the relevance of the message. I think, you know, hopefully you understand what I mean when I say the band would be very pleased for the songs to be less relevant, um, you know, for these issues to have all been settled by now. But the truth of it is that their voice is a welcome voice. And at a time where there's not a lot of people in popular music seeking to hold a mirror up to what's going on in the world, um, you know, they're a welcome role model for perhaps other artists who might want to think about, you know, doing their bit to push the rock up the hill a touch. Is there another album in them? I don't know. Um, You know, there's certainly members of the band who are very keen to explore the idea of recording. Um, It's been a a one-step-at-a-time process for them. I mean, they've worked really hard this year. You know, Mm. they'll have done... By the time the tour is done, I think we over 80 gigs around the world over the space of about seven months. Um, you know, a lot of travel. And, you know, they're, they're, they're not phoning it in. You know, they've, in the course of the European tour, they played 90 different songs. You know, they're rotating songs. They're playing two-hour sets or more every night. You know, they're shaking it up. They're keeping it different. They're giving fans who are coming to multiple shows, you know, different experiences every time, keeping it interesting for themselves challenging the hell out of their crew. Um, so it's, uh, 
But it's been fantastic to see. Again, there's a drive though, there's a standards element to this. You know, they come off stage and they are absolutely spent. They leave nothing Mm. behind, you know, and... um, as a consequence, people walk away going, "Oh my god, I had no idea rock and roll could be like that." You know, the 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 you go the people that came to Selena's and saw, you know, lucky enough to get to see that first <clears throat> sort of pub show that we did to launch the tour. Um, you know, so many people in their twenties who just came away going, "I really didn't know that a rock and roll band could be like that." Because if you've ever seen them live, it's like standing in front of a seven forty seven engine. You know, I've been there a few times. The the their ability to collaborate as a, as a unit and to deliver a single force off the front. Not, it, it actually comes out of the records. But I, I don't think I've ever seen a band, another band on the planet do what they do sometimes. No, there's, there's definitely a whole is greater than the sum of the parts mm. quality there. And they're a very unusual band, at least in my experience, in terms of how every single member has a really strong voice, you know, on different things. And it's not the same sort of, um, you know, those two against those three that you'll often get in bands. Like it's sort of on a given issue, you know, they talk through everything. They have a process that is um, very time-consuming for them and sort of very hard-working, but they, they have this ability to sift the very, very best out of what they do precisely because everybody has a voice within the band and strong voices, strong opinions, mm. you know, but they work their way through stuff. And I think you can really feel what comes out the other end as a result is really strong because it's been argued to get to that point. Like no no weak ideas make it out of that, you know, out of that particular process. Well, the editing process would be, would be like they've all got intellect that pretty much defines where the band's always gone because they haven't compromised that much at all, have That's they? That's right. And they're all, you know, there's there's writing talent from, you know, mm. through the band as well. And um, so you've got that multitude of perspectives, you know. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks. And this is part three of Peter's conversation with manager, record label owner and music publisher, John Watson. In a moment, John looks back at his personal highlights from his time in the music business. So... Chisel and the Oil has become a, now a, a part of Eleven and John Watson moving forward. Is, is there a plan for you in the next five years? Um, is, are you taking it day by day here, mate? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's uh, we're heading into footy finals as we take this, so I'm just taking it one game at a time, Peter. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, I, I, I think that, you know, the Oil's project has been a phenomenal um, opportunity as, you know, a kid who grew up listening to that band on the back of, of being able to work with Cold Chisel, it's been, um, yeah, I don't know how you really sort of top that in terms of your own personal experience. But we have commitments, you know, that are, that are quite personal to the artists we work with, to Birds of Tokyo, to Missy Higgins, to, to all of our artists. Um, you know, we're very excited about the presets record we'll have next year. Birds of Tokyo will have a record. Missy's got a record next year. Dustin's got ongoing activity. So there'll always be things to keep us busy. You know, I've got three kids in private schools and, um, you know. How how, how do they go with dad being away so much? How's that work? Well, I travel a lot less than I used to. So it's it's been, um, and I'm really very um, focused on trying to be around for them as much as possible to be there for the the debating and the cricket games and all that sort of stuff. So you, you, you do, 
I love that left-wing latte reference because you do seem like a reasonably sane human being in the, <laughs> in, in, in the middle of what is... What am I doing in this business? Yeah, that's right. In the middle of this <laughs> maniacy that goes on, which is very... I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but, I mean, every day on, a, on, a, uh, on some purpose that comes through the front door, there will be a crisis to, to, to manage that you can't ever tell anybody the depths of what is required to get those things fixed. So family life and the future are surely ingredients because I, I, one presumes you wake up one morning and go, really, I'm 50? I thought I was only 25. That's, that's a thousand percent right. There's got to be a typo somewhere. Um, <laughs> but then I look in the mirror and discover, no, no, it's definitely true. Um, well, we have I, to retire. Remember, we're retiring the, the, uh, the desperates, the Trivial Pursuit team, the moment O'Donnell comes back and we then end up running 10th. Uh, there'll be a retirement process there that we'll need to discuss as well. O'Donnell's coming back? <laughs> he's listening to this. I know. Of course he's coming back. Oh, Sorry. More lead in the saddlebags. Um, He'll be another interview and we'll then discover the, the other side of the story with that one. Ah. Uh, well, in that case, everything he says about me is a vicious lie. So the, the, that journey of family and career, joyous, right? Yeah, look, I think that the the... the the great joy of family is that it gives you a grounding outside of the stupidity of the music business. Um, you know, it's, an, it's a ridiculous way to make a living in many ways. You know, you are always feeling like you've got a tiger by the tail and only barely um, when you're dealing with a lot of these situations that, that arise. Um, but if you are going home to a situation that, that is stable... It allows you to not feel completely swept away at all times by what's going on at work. I can't pretend like it doesn't get to me sometimes. Of course it gets to me sometimes, but that happens to everybody. Everybody brings their work home sometimes and goes, I had a crap day in the office today. But not everybody gets to go home and go, you know, I've just come back from seeing Midnight Oil play in Johannesburg. That's pretty cool. You know, I've just read the Jimmy Barnes chapter, you know, before anybody's got to read it. It's, you know, so there's lots of great things about what I do and you just have to try to kind of, when you're having those bad days, keep them in perspective in terms of what the family is and remind yourself about the upsides. So the $6 million question though is, have you ever found yourself going home after seeing Midnight Oil in Johannesburg or something else that's just as fabulous and discovering that your behaviours with the family slightly resemble how you're managing a band? Well, my wife does like to sometimes say, don't manage me. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, yeah. to, which, to which I would say, as if that's possible. <laughs> um, but no, I, look, I'm sure there are, there are bleeds. The great part about it is, of course, that kids have no comprehension for, of what you really do yeah. and care even less, really. Yeah. So um, my son was very, very impressed that I was able to get him some free tickets to see Two Door Cinema Club the other night. Um, that's probably the first time that he's actually thought that what I do, you know... Is of some value. Is of, yeah, some value other than, hey, can I have 20 bucks to go to the movies, yeah. you know? Um, so, but I like that. I don't, you know, I'm not really that interested in having you know, our youngest um, child, our, our daughter, she's the one that sort of likes fame and she sort of, you know, stars in her eyes and, you know, gets... gets um, very impressed by sort of famous people and, you know, loves, you know, we got her to meet Katy Perry and things like that and she loves all of that. 
And there is part of me that goes, mm, I really don't want to fan those flames. You know, I don't know that it's necessarily a life that I would want to push my, my kids into. It's been really great to me. Um, and if they chose to follow it, then I would back their passions. But um, yeah, it, I, it, it's, it is kind of a nutty business. And as you say, there is a certain element of luck involved. Anybody who's been any successful, has been successful at anything in life, who doesn't say that luck played a role is an idiot. Um, it's not only luck. But there's definitely been luck. Yeah, but the skill is to take the luck <clears throat> and turn it into um, more than that. And that's that 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 journey and process is something that um, you know. I, I think it's a great reflection of your career. Um, to, yeah. Well, I, I look. I, it's it's like the old Kenny Rogers song, right? You know, it's like got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Um, so it is partly. the Why don't you job. have these lyrics available when the Trivial Pursuit team does once a year? Listen, and, if the and gambler a failure every time, if the gambler is ever asked, I will be You'll able be to recite every single word. I have the sheet music next to my desk. It is as close to a mantra for life as I could. I could possibly imagine. Um, but I think that idea of, you know, yeah, it's partly the cards you dealt and it's partly how you play them. Yeah. Um, that's, that's all true. But really, the business is as simple as this, though. You know, find great artists and try to add value to their careers. You know, if you're lucky enough to get with, you know, a good artist, particularly in this country where there aren't that many truly great artists, if you're lucky enough to get to work with them, don't screw it up. And add value as you go along and never, ever make the mistake of thinking that it's all about you. It's never about you. It's always about them. Regrets? Well. Anything you'd wish you'd done better? I, if I had a parallel universe, I'd have done something with my life that was perhaps using mind rather than wits. Um, you know, I was studying law for a bit before I started working at Sony and had to drop out of that. And there's always been part of me that sort of wishes that I'd finished that and been able to kind of, you know, live a little more of the life of the mind, a little less than the life of the like hustle. Get, get home at 5.30 at night. Well, I don't, I don't even think, you know, then I talk to anybody who's a lawyer and they go, you're an absolute yeah. fool or why on earth would you want to do that? There's no work-life balance, yeah, da 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 So, I don't know. No, I've got no regrets. I mean, I, I as I say, the only, um, the only sort of road not taken for me is that I, there are times where, I, where it can feel a little like your brain is rotting um, in the, because of the silliness of, you know, you're protecting artists from a business that's often seeking to exploit them. So there's a new hustler well, coming it in. It is. It's entirely about exploitation, John. <clears throat> so, so you're consistently um, being the buffer, the shock absorber between the artist and the rest of the world. And every day there's a new person walking the door going, this is going to be great exposure for your artist, you know, and off you go onto some other crazy scheme that you've got to say no to. So after you've seen the thousandth kind of, you know, bad salesman coming in the door, you do sort of think, really, is this exactly what I'm going to be uh, spending a life doing? But then you turn around and go, you stand side of stage with Silverchair at Rock in Rio and there's a quarter of a million people going nuts. You stand at Centennial Park, you know, 18 months after Missy's been playing to 80 people, she's playing to 17,000. Um, you know, you're in the studio when the band comes up with that song, you know, you're standing with, with Birds of Tokyo as they play at the AFL Grand Final, which has always been a dream for them and it's a dream for you. Um, these are all moments that you kind of go... you get a free ticket to go and sit in the stand in the members area as well. After you, get that, a free, you? you get a free ticket and uh, unfortunately it doesn't guarantee the admission of your, uh, of your team. However, oh. I would note that I'm, I'm more a Swans fan, if I'm being completely frank, but I still follow the Cowboys as a boy from North Queensland. 
And um, so, of course, when Cole Chisel played the 2015 NRL Grand oh, Final and the Cowboys moment. were there yeah, and yeah. won in that ridiculous circumstance, yes. that was definitely one of those nights where I thought, yeah, I'm yeah. really an arsey You bastard. stayed to the end, didn't you? I stayed to the end. And the unfortunate part is that Don, Don Walker from Cole Chisel, is a massive Broncos fan. Like, he's much more of a Broncos fan than I'm a Cowboys fan, if I'm being completely honest. Like, he watches every week. He's obsessive. He's in a tipping comp. He loves his footy. And... Um, and I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a kind of, oh, the Cowboys are in the finals, I'll pay attention now, sort of league fan. And uh, so after the Cowboys had won, we actually had to share a ride back into town from from Homebush. It was a very, very quiet car ride. <laughs> On the, left, the other side of the back seat. He's a, he's a classy guy. He's a very classy guy. He didn't say anything, but, like, he was hurting. Yeah. And, uh, there a was lousy just, loser, that's there what was, you're there was, No, 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 he was fine. He was, it was all class, but, like, it just wasn't the time for small talk. <laughs> um, so... Last sort of question, really, is is there one single thing that's, that you would call as your watermark position, your high, your high tide piece so far? It's, it's, such an, it's such an interesting journey so far of achievement and so much of it is, is obviously done in a in, in sense collaboratively. The thing I would – yes, that's very true about the um, collaborative nature of the success, both with the artists and with Melissa and, yeah, and the other the members staff, of our team right. and the broader members of our team, booking agents, labels and everything else. It's, it's, you know, it's always a team thing. I guess my general observation would be that the highlights tend to not always be the ones people think they'll be because when you're in the middle of, you know, an artist cleaning up at the ARIA Awards or, you know, Gautier winning Grammys and things like that – you don't actually really have time to process it because you're dealing with the mechanics of, okay, they need to get to the media room. What are they going to say at this next thing? How are they getting back for their performance? You know, what's happening with the costume change? Who's the person that hasn't been thanked that needs to be thanked? And you're processing the actual mechanics of the night. And it's Mm. really when you're in the car on the way home, you're like, oh, shit, I just won six arias, you know? Uh, But you literally haven't thought about it until one o'clock, you know, in the morning. The highlights tend to be other things, you know, moments where, like I can remember Daniel giving me the cassette demo, the first one of Straight Lines, and just, um, he actually came into the office and played it. I can remember throwing a pen across the room with excitement at the song. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, just like that song is undeniable. Um, yeah. So there tend to be more creative moments like that. Missy performing the special two. And for the first time live, first time I'd ever heard it, she'd only written it the day before and performing at a show and feeling the temperature drop in the room. Um, you know, uh, a moment with Cold Chisel in Cairns, weirdly enough, which a person from Townsville, you're not supposed to like Cairns, but um, in Cairns, in far north Queensland, uh, in a tent on a Friday night where it was bucketing down right with rain, so everyone was crammed into this tent and the audience singing Kaysan and just like just drowning out Eric Robinson's best PA. And it was extraordinary, you know, like chilling. Mm. Um, you know, the oils on that DC day playing When the Generals Talk, you know, right after Trump has fired Comey. Those sorts of moments tend to be the moments that stick out more than the you know, the stats type moments or the kind of the big paydays or whatever the case may be. I remember once uh, when I looked after John English for a long time and uh, he'd start in a 
television series called Against the Wind. I remember it well. And had six a song, ribbons. Six Ribbons. And um, somehow this television show got played in the Scandinavian countries. And unbeknownst, because uh, we own the soundtrack to mm-hmm. the to the um, to the series, uh, separately did the deal with Polygram. So I had uh, done a deal with a very small independent label that had rung me in Sweden about distrib- distribution. And long before the internet and uh, mobile telephones, I, I get this telex uh, with the, and on, on the telex it announced that uh, the album and the single Six Ribbons were number one in all four territories. Wow. And I, I, <coughs> I didn't even know they'd released it. <laughs> I didn't even know the television show had gone to air because you know, in those days yeah. communication was that big. And you and you you sort of sat down in your chair because the long distance of it all meant that you had absolutely nothing really to do with how it got there, but God, it gave you a sense of satisfaction afterwards. Yeah, that international success thing is always it always feels a little bit magical. You know, mm. you're always not quite sure how it happened because it is, as you say, beyond your reach. Mm. You, you know, you weren't even if you've worked towards it, even if you've been through the market a few times before it happens or whatnot. You know, that moment. Um, as I say, with Silverchair at Rock in Rio, where they performed, they were performing um, "Miss You Love," a song off the third album, not like one of their biggest singles, but it had been a really big hit in Brazil, and the crowd was like just screaming every word, the tears rolling down the you know the cheeks of all these people in the front, rowing, just like, what the hell happened here? Like you know, it was just unfathomable it felt like yeah it felt otherworldly and and did do you see how difficult that must be for those three boys on stage to to then leave that that walk off that stage and then go and live a normal life afterwards yeah it's it's a it's a very strange kind of dichotomy you know for them like the 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 silence of the of the hotel room Colin Hay has a great story, which you need to hear him tell, about doing the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think it was, when, when Men at Work were like, you know, a big deal and they were inducting somebody great. And he was on stage and um, he's playing, right? And he's looking at going, Paul McCartney, Jagger, three unbelievably hot supermodels all eyeing me off. This is going to be the best night of my life, right? He plays his song, finishes, thank you, good night. Comes off stage, two security guys grab him, zhunk, straight up, into an esque elevator, up to the top of the building, into a helicopter, across to another building, back down the elevators. The two security guys are literally marching him back into his hotel room, boom, 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 lock him in the room. He's on his own literally five minutes after he's come off stage. Just like, what happened to that? Where's Mick? Where's Paul? <laughs> where's the supermodels? You know. Oh, um, and uh, I'm not doing it justice. Colin Hay's the best storyteller in the world and um, he tells that story much better than I do, so I apologise to him. But that, that, that dichotomy between what you see on stage and what you see off stage, you know, is often hard to imagine. It can be darker than that too. Like, that's the funny version. There's plenty of darker ones, you know. A lot of it's in, in Jimmy's new book, for example, you know. We probably won't go into the dark ones in this. What a thank you. Thank you for coming in to visit. Thanks for having me, Pete. Thank you for being a part of uh, the podcast. The big thing for me is to uh, wish you luck on the next steps of the journey. Thank you very much. And if my kids wonder where I've been for the last 15 years, now they know. They will. They will. We'll make sure they get a copy. (laughs) Yeah, because they'll really want to listen to it. (laughs) John Watson. 
In the next episode of From the Inside, Peter speaks to someone very close to his own career in the music business, a member of one of the bands Peter managed over the years, Les Gock from Hush. It's a story about breaking through in the era of Countdown and AM radio and how personal reinvention brought new success in the 80s and beyond. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Listener.